We're going to read 2 Peter 3. Fantastic chapter. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and fall from your secure position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Um, I don't know if you're aware of some of uh, the Presbyterian Church's history. It's got some happy moments in our history and some sad moments. Um, I guess the the sad one that comes to mind for me is the way our our college went astray and uh, liberal theology, that is theology that doesn't take God's word as uh, fully reliable and without error, um, led to many ministers being trained say not believing in the resurrection, uh, the resurrection, but miracles, um, virgin birth, things like that. Uh, it's good to know how blessed we are as a denomination now to have a college that fully believes in these things um, and the legacy now of some decades. Um, the Presbyterian Church around Australia is, um, many tell me from other denominations, if you want to go to a you're in a town and you want to hear the gospel, 
often the Prezi one is a good first one to go to, as the Anglican Church and Baptist churches can be mixed in God's kindness. But um, I think the motto for a while was humbled but hopeful after union. And uh, the denomination began again to really be confident in God's word as a whole. Um, I don't know if you've been exposed to liberal theology. sometimes go to a youth conference and then I'd have to debrief the youth about what they heard at the conference. I know they said this. What do you think the Bible says about that? Um, not to run down the Uniting Church, uh, our own congregation held to the Bible to be God's Word. Um, one Uniting Church friend of mine went to the college knowing that it was going to be difficult to get through. And he was planning to stay together with some Bible believers through the Bible college and come out at the other end. But sadly, his faith was undermined over time and his confidence in Scripture diminished uh, to the point where he would now teach all roads lead to God, Sunday by Sunday. So false teaching and lack of confidence in what God's Word says, and in particular the second coming of Jesus, I mean, that, that's a, a litmus test, really, if you want to look like a crazy person, go and put Christ will return on you on the street, as some bold people still do. Uh, God bless them, and, and may that be effective. But that, that doctrine in particular, Christ's return, is one that really people think, you know, you've lost it. Uh, that doom and gloom preaching. When I was in a country to our north not long ago, um, one of my friends is teaching in a Bible college there. He said there were three of us who were Bible believers, in, in that fuller sense, on the faculty out of about ten. Now one of us is leading, and leading, leading two. So two out of ten Bible teachers will be teaching things like the, the resurrection, it's physical, that heaven is a, a real place that we'll be going to, rather than just an idea that helps us live a better life. Uh, this danger of false teaching is all around us in Australia. And if you've been nicely protected from that, uh, we'll praise God. But this is no uh, theoretical threat or danger. It's a very real one. It's very close. And uh, Peter helps us to be ready for that in this third chapter. Um, and really the question is, will Jesus re really return? So chapter 1, be sure he really did come. He really was glorious. Chapter 3, with that confidence in who Jesus is and, and in Scripture, you can be sure he's coming back. So that's the logic of the letter. We know he came the first time, you can be sure he's come, he'll come again. So in verses 1 to 7, again in this context of people who mock the, the Christians, and they're mocking from inside the church. It's not just people outside mocking, but inside. As uh, my own background um, offers an example. So let's look through chapter 3 together, and I'm focusing on verses 1 to 13. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you, 1 Peter being the first, we think. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, that is, Old Testament, and the command also given by our Lord and Saviour through your apostles. Remember what the prophets say. Uh, remember what the scriptures are, are, are saying. 
But remember also the command of Jesus. It's interesting there, it's in the singular, not commands or instructions. Uh, I guess referring to all of Christ's teachings as a body, as in the truth in the singular. Or the law of the Old Testament, even though it's made up of laws. The command of Jesus, which centred on repent and believe and be ready for Christ's return. Remember what Jesus taught. Remember the warnings too and preparation of the Old Testament. Why is this so important now? He says so in verse 3. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. So an intellectual element, but also a lifestyle element. I wonder if you know of any scoffers. Um, Perhaps uh, people who might call themselves Christians, but question your militancy perhaps or your claims that Jesus is the only way they might question your church attendance and the priorities you give to church uh, over other good priorities they might think it's a bit over the top if they hear about some of your financial sacrifices the second coming of Jesus if it does come up in conversation might just make them feel awkward rather than an amen kind of moment Peter described the scoffers in chapter 2, but now he tells us in verse 4, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So they seem to believe in creation. They seem to believe in uh, much of what scripture says. They seem to be in and around the church. But they say, look at history ever since creation. Every day is much the same. Every year, every decade, every century. Why should we expect this to ever change? Why do you keep banging on about Jesus' return and being ready for it? Nothing has happened in the past to break this pattern. Why should we expect anything in the future? Your view of Jesus' return and your fervour about this is, well, shall we say, it's unlikely. There's no historical precedent for God to act in this way. So sometimes the best arguments are those that just cast a bit of doubt. I think 5% of doubt in a Christian's life can lead to 30% less effectiveness. Because it's that certainty that just pushes you to think, yeah, I will say that, or I will bring the conversation around this way, or I will invite someone to church or to the Bible study group or to our home. Because of that that certainty that we have. And so the, the New Atheist campaign, you might have heard of the one in London on the buses where they'd say, not God does not exist, that's what Dawkins wanted to say as one of the main fundraisers, but God probably does not exist. Enjoy yourself. Smoking may not lead to cancer. Just that doubt is enough for most people to not worry about. And the atheist assumption is similar. Precedence alone. Jesus couldn't turn water into wine because that doesn't happen. Without realising that that's the whole point. That's why it's recorded. Something happened. Something that broke all expectations. That's why we're talking about it. But back to the false teachers, and we need to engage our brains here, uh, late in the, or early in the afternoon, as we listen to people dis- dismantle their argument quite cleverly. Verse 5. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
I think referring to Genesis 1.6, where it talks about the separation of the waters and the process by which that's recorded creation took place. By these waters, also, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. Genesis chapter 7. You say that nothing has changed since the beginning of creation, but what do you think Noah would say about that? Things haven't always gone on since the, the same since the beginning of creation. At one point, God did bring destruction on the world by the same water that created the world. There is a historical and thus scientific precedent of judgment. The flood says God does act mightily in his creation. God's judgment is not new, and neither are those who mock his people. I mean, take Noah as one example. One day scoffing at Noah for his ridiculous ark, what are you doing, Noah? What are you banging on about? What a joke you are. We don't get all the details of the story, but we might imagine they'd have beating or scratching on the closed door to get in. But all too late. God spoke, Noah believed, Noah lived. God spoke, others mocked, others died. It's not new and it's not clever to reject God's word. There's a difference between being intelligent and being right. Between having sophistication and having wisdom. A good example of this comes to mind from a most unlikely young boy when I was, at, I was a youth minister for a while in Macquarie Fields in the western suburbs of Sydney. And I remember the, the folly, in a way, of the church. A most unlikely group of people made up of very unimpressive people myself included, just there in the group. And we were there at McDonald's and I'm thinking, where else would a group like this be together, except in the church? One of the young fellows there uh, was blind from birth. He'd grown up in a, a housing commission home and uh, had the evidence of neglect in his life, but loved the church, loved being at church. And one day he said, I was looking after the night service, and he said, David, do you think I could sing that Colin Buchanan song? We give thanks to you, O oh God. We give thanks to you. I said, we'd love to hear that. Can you, could you do that for us? And, and he, he learned to play the drums at church. And he got up in front of the church and he sang that before us all. A beautiful wisdom in someone that the world had otherwise com completely thought irrelevant. Didn't seem incredibly intelligent but same with wisdom of God's goodness. The intelligent, on the other hand, can be cruel and arrogant, self-important, just plain wrong on some of the basic truths of what makes life work well. So Isaiah says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Now, Eleven months before Pearl Harbor, there was a good indication that Pearl Harbor was going to take place, the attacks. When the US ambassador was told about the uh, the danger that another ambassador had heard about. He wanted relations to go well, and so he gave the report no credence as he handed it back to, to Washington. An unheeded warning, a quick dismissal of inconvenient warnings, and the results were catastrophic. An intelligent man, no doubt, 
but wrong. And wrong to dismiss a real danger, because he didn't like to hear it. So Peter says there in verse 7, By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Now what's Peter's logic here? What's his point? His point is that what created last time, water, was an agent of destruction for God. What also created, there was water and there was word, let there be light. The word that created last time hasn't yet brought its judgment, but the word too is bringing its judgment. As yet is unfulfilled, but this word promises destruction. So, for example, Deuteronomy speaks of a great fire that's going to consume the earth. Isaiah speaks of a great fire that's not just going to consume the temple or Jerusalem, but the nations. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 8, I'll give you one example. For my decision is to gather nations to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in it the fire of my jealousy. Uh, for in, it, in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed. An enormous cosmic, at least earthwide, fire. So according to God's word, the word that created, judgment is not only possible, it is coming. It's certain. There's something yet very much unfulfilled in what Scripture's been saying in both Testaments. Remember the flood, Peter says, and look out. Our Creator has unfinished business. I don't know what your schooling was like, but in mine, when, when someone said the teacher's coming, most people in the, some of the classes would panic or would move quickly. It can mean different things to different students, can't it? Depending on your approach uh, to education and being taught. I remember one of my friends being caught with his hands on the, on the fan knob, um, having attached something to it and turned it on at great velocity. So he put a stapler or something on there and then the whole class would watch and kind of watching fear. The teacher's coming led to fear and dread and he got caught. And so too, this word of a return, return of Jesus to us can bring dread to some, while to others we can be looking forward to it. Verse 7 tells us those who could be rightly terrified says for the ungodly, for those despise, despising Christ's authority. There will be no survivors. It will be a blaze that burns everything. It will make Pearl Harbor and Hiroshima even seem like nothing. No survivors on earth, no SES, no police, no army. No one to be rescued and no one to rescue. Worst of all, it's not a quick death, but one that just begins an eternal suffering that Jesus warns of with tears in his eyes through the Gospels. Cut off your hand, pluck out an eye. If those things lead you to face God's judgment. Now, I don't know how you feel about that idea of God's judgment. Some people might even reject Christianity because they don't like the sound of what Christianity teaches. Like saying, I don't like the sound of this bushfire, so I'm going to ignore it in the morning. I've wrestled over God's judgment. I wrestle over that issue of culpability when some of friends I love 
you call good people by our standards? Why is it, God, they have to suffer judgment? And yet when I watch the news, uh, I find some documentaries, I I don't know how you go with them, but I, I find them too disturbing to watch, some of them. So a child sex trade, for example. I just find that so disturbing, so upsetting, I often can't watch the whole thing. To think of it, a child sometimes being born into that situation, being sold by a mum and a dad, perhaps who this child could have expected anything but that. The person they could have looked to the most has been the one who's led them into this. God knows about this. Much more, I mean, if I'm disturbed, how much more God who made and knitted together this precious girl in her mother's womb? If I find this hard to bear, how much more God who knows every scream, even the silent screams of this heart, or knows the maliciousness or the evil in the hearts of those destroying this young And I cry out for relief, and I, I cry out, God, will you please do something? Will you please make right the wrongs in this world? And I say, come, Lord Jesus, will you fix it? You see, God gets blamed for his inaction. Why doesn't God do something? I can't believe in a God who lets these things happen. And he gets blamed for his action. I can't believe in a God who's going to judge. And so, having dealt with the sceptic's false arguments, Peter now turns his attention to the Christians, to us as well, in verses 8 to 10. Don't listen to them, he says. Don't worry. Mockers always will be. Don't worry. Don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. God sees time in a way that we can't. He has the ability to see a much bigger picture. We see time like this, the day we're in, and yesterday we... Remember? God can see the end at the same time as he sees the beginning. A day like a thousand years. A thousand years like a day. Big picture, but also intensity of focus. So what's Peter's point? Peter's point is God will act when God is ready. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Please don't call him slow when he holds back the rain. Please don't call him slow when he holds back the judgment of fire. Call him patient. Even today, more people will find safety in the Ark of Christ. When we arrived in Mongolia, there were, back in the early 1990s, virtually no believers. By 1995, 2,000 believers. By 2001, 30,000 believers. By the time we got there, oh, by about 2012, 60 to 100,000 believers. So the Mongolian church say, thank you, Lord, for these 27 years, 28 years. Turkey, Syria, Sudan, China, 60 to 100 million Christians, according to statistics. I find hard to understand. Slow? No. Patient? Yes. The restraint of God's hand is incredible. How does God bear with the knowledge of the sin and the damage and the hurt that's going on in his world? How does he restrain his hand from saying enough 
but God will act. See the four future tenses there in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Will be exposed. Open to his full view. World history as we know it does have a termination point. Whether the world believes in it or not. Unexpectedly like a thief. Noisily like a raging bull. That is, everything laid bare and exposed so that the judge can have full knowledge as he exercises his righteous judgment. A friend of mine shared his testimony, and part of his testimony was going from being a self-righteous, competent man who says, I'm not a sinful person, to one whom God very kindly and very powerfully exposed his sin in him. And he said, it was like I was completely open and exposed by God when I was on the beach one day. And the words of God after I told the pastor, I'm not a sinful man, get out of my house, the words became, he got it very clearly from God with his life completely exposed, you are not good. And he said he went back to the house, went back to where he was staying, was camping at the time, got a Bible and found refuge in the forgiveness Jesus offers. God will act. And this guy said, I never wanted to be feeling so exposed before God again. It was like he could see into my heart, he could see my history, he could see the darkness. And so I ran to Christ, I never wanted that moment of exposure again before him. Watch out for God. We worry about North Korea. Watch out for God or Iran, or whatever our fear is. They're possible threats. God is a certain threat. Judgment is coming. Enter the ark of my son. The door is open. So I say there may be people here today who may be in that category. Please enter the ark of Christ while you can. And if you're in, stand firm. Uh, particularly if you're young and there are temptations around you, where peer pressure might feel stronger than it does later in life, where a certain romance, where you sense he or she loves me and I, 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 I'm compelled by that love, or it might be travel where you become anonymous for a while. These are the kinds of gentle ways that we are led away from Christ. Career and wealth, kids' sport and our commitment to that lead to habits that are bad for us. If you're under the wing of Christ, stay right where you are. But what Peter says next in verse 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed. That is, I take it, work in life that's coming. Um, there's a sense, too, in Scripture in which we have a real part in the timing of Christ's return. Though that's hard to, to fully understand. Live like Noah, if you can imagine what that was like. Building towards something that others say is unlikely, but we know is certain. I've been greatly helped by Bible study leaders, pastors, people in my life who have a clear view of Jesus' return. An apocalyptic pastor, an apocalyptic Bible study leader, who keeps presenting me with eternity and the fickleness of things in this life. 
Keep our eyes on heaven. Live holy and godly lives if you look forward to the day of God. So the Christian stance is one who looks forward. Verse 12, that day will bring about the destructions of the heaven by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. That word elements could be it's their equivalent of the word atom, the basic building blocks of life, or it could mean the physical and spiritual dimensions where there's going to be a, a, a massive exposure and then judgment by fire of the world. Verse 13, but in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. And keeping that victim of human trafficking in mind, I love the phrase where he says, the home of righteousness. What a great summary phrase, the home of righteousness. I take it to be a restored earth rather than a completely new one. Romans 8, the earth's looking forward to the renewal. So I take it to be a renewing of the earth. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. I think Peter's point is, since you need to wait, wait well. Why not wait well? Godly, verse 11, that is, someone who has that sense of consecration, set-apartness, godly, that, that God-awareness. Look forward to the day of God, verse 12. Look forward to the new heaven and the new earth, that home of righteousness, which is your true home, citizens of heaven. Spotless, blameless, and at peace with him, verse 14. Verse 15, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. I love your connect plans. Salvation. Bring people in, connect with them. And by the way, Peter says, Paul wrote about the same things with the wisdom God gave him. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people not only misunderstand, they distort intentionally, as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now there might be a slide coming up in a moment. Um, but one of the questions often that comes up at college and in church settings is, what will the new heavens and the new earth be like? And uh, trying to work out the details of this is difficult. Get lots of images in scripture rather than concrete details. Thanks for that. And uh, it reminds me a little of trying to describe to my kids in Mongolia where the temperatures can be minus 30s, even in the minus 40s. When it's in the minus 40s, they say, oh, it's cold today, isn't it? <laughs> Occasionally, even in the minus 50s. So that was just an outing. We went to the river. That's the kind of dress you wear to go to the river, and you can do ice skating and things. So they're sitting there very cold, actually. They're not warm at the moment, even in all that gear. Um, but try and explain to our kids what the holiday in Thailand is going to be like. <laughs> you can tell them about the beach. You can tell them about the pools, because we, we have our conference there and then we have a week of holidays after it. You can tell them about the pineapple and the mango, but it's something else when you get there. If you show the next two slides, Dave, are they coming up? So there's Maisie, who's now nearly 10. That's Mongolia. One of my favourite photos is when we arrived in Mongolia. Uh, sorry, in Thailand, and, and day one we went straight to the beach and took this photo. 
<laughs> okay? One thing to describe a swimming pool, this is down the beach, one thing to describe it, but another thing to experience it and to enjoy it, the warmth, the lack of clothing, the taste of the pineapple, diving into that pool. That's, I think, the same kind of thing that's happening in Scripture, where God gives us these images that are giving us hints. He wants his people to trust his word, trust the promises, know his character, and let that shape what we're expecting. He tells us what's coming, but it's always more awesome than we realize through Scripture. For example, he says, put blood on the doorposts and it will go well with you. Don't put blood on the doorposts and there will be judgment. But whoa, the judgment that God brought, he was serious. He really does want to rescue us as his people. Or I'll get you out of judgment, uh, out of Egypt, trust me. But then when you come and, and you face the Red Sea, it seems impossible. But whoa, did you see that? The sea opened up in front of us. We thought God might do it, but this is something else. Well, before Jesus came, we had, had, had promises. I'll send my servant king, whatever that means, to rescue you. Predicted, yes. But so much richer and better than anyone could have expected when we see the, the depths of who Jesus is. The God-man doing amazing miracles giving us a window into the future when blindness and crippleness won't be an issue anymore. Being the Passover lamb who crushes death to death forever and proves it by rising from the dead. Awesome! Now you can say it's all there in the Old Testament. There are images, yes. But the reality, the reality knocked everybody's socks off and it still knocks my socks off when I'm teaching John's Gospel or something at college. The profoundness of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so here we are again this afternoon. God's waiting people. With God's promises in our hearts. Waiting for the final victorious strike of God to end all evil. And bring us into his home of righteousness. It will be just like God to overwhelm us with his majesty and his goodness and his good plans for us. His power and his kindness. God, you gave us those glimpses of what the new heavens and new earth would be like. But it's so much better in reality. Will Jesus return? Peter wants us to have no doubt about it. How should we wait? Let's wait well. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Father, we're challenged by the words of the Apostle Paul, who also spoke of this with great urgency. Don't receive your grace in vain, because now is the day of your favour, now is the day of your salvation. But the doors to heaven remain open. Or when he says that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Each day, one day closer. Father, forgive us in our waywardness. We struggle to hold the vision that Jesus gave for us the new heavens and the new earth. Have mercy on us and keep redirecting us in the ways of Jesus, we pray. We need your help to live well until the Lord Jesus returns. And we rejoice that we have your help living within us. Your Holy Spirit giving us confidence in you so that we would be persistent and faith-filled and prayerful as we wait. Now, Father, we love you and we love your salvation. 
And we say with the saints through the ages, come Lord Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.